<laughs> so Daniel, the, it makes me ask the eligible pool, are you able to reach younger than high school students? Or, or are they, t tell me what, how, how young can the attendees be at these diversity conferences? Um, those are typically, undergraduate students are the youngest. And oh, they are, um, not even high school. Wow. Not even high school. They, they may have some students who are dual enrollment currently. Right. Students, but taking Increasingly. Yeah. Yes. They primarily target undergraduate students and they do have some professional and career development areas for graduate students and postdocs to go on to the, the next level as well. But for high school students here um, in Minnesota, that's actually middle school and high school that's an area that we're hoping to develop a new program by partnering with local communities. So I talked a little bit about that earlier. That's in the early stages and we yes. want to definitely involve the community that we want to partner with in the early stages of planning so we can align our goals and make sure that the needs of that community will be met from this partnership and not just come in and assume what it is that they actually need and what we will be doing. But there's a number of departments in our medical school that have um, existing relationships and partnerships with the local community. But I, I definitely want to take the time and our office wants to be very mindful in the partnership that we develop and be able to build upon that relationship and not have it just be a one-time you know, activity or one-time effort. There are a lot of great programs that our individual departments are doing, but we're trying to see if we can have a unified effort and especially targeting that educational disparity and especially targeting you know, the areas of math and science, which are two key areas that students nationally underperform, um, especially if they're in low-income or ethnic and, and racial minority areas. So that's something that, you know, I'm very passionate about yes. and hope to be able to develop a, a program um, centered around that here in Minnesota. A different kind of testimonial that makes this whole huge point about the importance of representation is just a recent interview I had with a, the man as an entrepreneur and an activist and a producer lots of different kinds of careers he's had. And he's in his late 40s now. His whole interview was about, the whole thread was how, this is a gay man I'm talking about, the leadership role that his, not out of the clock, not outed gay leader of his Boy Scouts, how important the skill transfer was from somebody that represented him without being outed, that is, I keep saying, and how much that meant to every kind of skill set he uses in, in an amazing career of such huge different kinds of adaptations. So it's like, a, it's another data point about folks, if we, think, if we think representation doesn't have meaning, we're here, we're reminded of that yet again. And, and you, you are, you're the one representing women in science to your population of concern. So it's just so powerful what you can offer. But that's where I'm back to my earlier question about those headwinds that you have with the Reddit CEO stepping down. And I also want to mention 
that you've got Minnesota Public Radio, and there's a, I think there's a Great Lakes radio system. I hope you make yourself a real institution, a real habit around there, and make sure they all know where you're pushing out because they all want those assignments to get busy and work on this justice project we all have to own. We all are owning. Absolutely, yes. You bring up some, some really great points. I'm just um, trying to I have so many thoughts. I'm like, what else do I want to cover? Yes, so representation in science definitely matters. Representation, I think, in every discipline matters. But of course, my background is science. And that is one of the things, one of the many things that students um, at any institution really call for is you know, representation. Um, is representation in your student body, in your staff, in your faculty, really creates a culture of um, support, one where the students feel that they're a part of the community. So building a sense of community is really important, especially when you're recruiting graduate students. Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in my graduate program, I was um, one of very few people of color I was the only African-American woman in my graduate program for a number of years. But with that, there were times where I felt isolated, but I had a community within that program. And I also had a community outside of the program. Mm -hmm. And so I was very active with a student organization that was newly formed, um, graduate students of color, where there were a number of students who might've been the only person of color in their graduate program. And we were able to find community there through our racial and ethnic identities. But you know, we, we also had some support from, from groups with other identities and, and other similar experiences that we were able to identify and, and make it through our programs. And so I think having, you know, assessing the culture in your program is very important because once you recruit students, you can't say, okay, we recruited all these students of color and they should just assimilate to our culture here. And if they make it, they make it. I think we have to have some intentionality in the students that we recruit. Um, we also yep. have to be mindful that we have to provide resources for all of our students to be successful. And those resources may be vastly different for our students, especially, you know, could be the resources we have for women could be different than the resources we provide men. Um, and also, you know, other gender identities. Um, also, you know, resources for students of color could be different from, you know, from majority students. And so these are things we have to have a conscious effort in recruiting our students. And so if you're not going to have the commitment to those students' success, then you shouldn't be recruiting them. And so I think we really have to assess that. So... I don't know how I got started on this. I think it's this one really, really interesting person I follow on Twitter. And there was a whole thread, Danielle, of where diversity delivered in healthcare provision. And it was an African, a Black American patient who came off of her anesthesia and she realized that her Black American anesthesiologist or a surgeon, they, they added a couple more braids than when she went into surgery. And the whole discussion in the thread was, 
Yes, you braid the hair so you can move it away from the incision area and you, you do it, you do less to the, you know, the incision, you do less shaving, you do all these, but it was sort of that attention that not just that person, but a lot of people in the thread say, oh yeah, that's what we do. It, it's, a better, it's a better practice. Were it not for that representation in terms of the applied healthcare delivery, then that person, that patient, and others would not be served as well as they should be. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. So I saw the um, recent um, New York Times article that you had uh, sent to me in uh, in called um, in harm's way, yes. where a number of you know healthcare workers from you know doctors, nurses, two full pages of these. Yes. Oh my goodness. It was you know, very emotional just to go through and, and, and mm. just, even if you just scan through the pictures and, and when you recognize that under some people's, you know, photos that it has the day that they died and seeing that many of them passed away in March. I mean, these are people not just limited to the United States. These are people all across the world that, you know, literally put their lives on the line to battle COVID and to be there for others. And reading some of the things that they have faced with COVID and the death tolls, in, especially in um, communities of color with yes. you know, Latinx, with African-Americans, with indigenous populations. And of course, there's a huge um, Native American indigenous population here in Minnesota. Oh, that's and just right. Seeing yeah. the, yes, and just seeing the numbers you know, there in regards to um, their tied as one of the highest populations to die from COVID um, here in, but they only account for 1.4% of the population in Minnesota. Wow. But they have one of the highest death rates. Um, if you also looking at the rate of incidents, African-Americans and Latinx populations have the highest rate of incidence with COVID, but only account for collectively um, less than 15% of the population here in Minnesota. You know, another statistic I saw was that the indigenous populations have the highest rate of hospitalizations out of all of the racial backgrounds here in Minnesota. And so the conversation, as you, everyone has probably noticed, has yes. been around communities of color and their treatment and exposure and death rates um, to COVID and, and hearing how people of color have been turned, turned away from COVID testing sites or have faced discrimination when coming into emergency rooms or other healthcare facilities, how they were treated. And so that reminds me of actually this, just this Wednesday, I attended another uh, session on the um, Envisioning the Future series here at the um, University of Minnesota Human Rights Lab. And this session was on addressing racial inequalities in health outcomes. And one of the speakers talked about, I think it was Dr. Hardiman, who's a professor here in Minnesota, talked about um, racism in public health with the connection between mortality and racial backgrounds, which was irregardless of economic and education level, that Black women were dying at higher rates than white women. Yes. Um, yes. And so it was due to a racial inequality. And she mentioned Serena Williams. Yes, yes. With her story. We have yeah. brought her up. She is the poster woman for how that hasn't worked. And an yes. elite athlete that can save her own life and delivering her baby. It's, 
Yes, uh, Daniel, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's an unbelievable scenario for us to let sink in over and over again. Yes, and to that point is why does it take a African-American woman known through the world who is as a top fierce athlete competitor for awareness, you know, for aware, this to be brought to people's awareness or for people even to believe that this exists or to believe that this happens. And so I think that also ties into the experience of people of color and other marginalized identities and groups in the U.S. that many people did not believe that we face police brutality because they didn't experience it. And so, you know, is it something that's real? And I think that's something else that people of color, especially um, battle in spaces where they are the only one. So again, talking about representation matter because you have someone else who you believe would, I could um, support you and know that what you're experiencing is real that it's not going to be dismissed because they did not have this experience. And you're not gonna be questioned, are you sure that it happened this way? Or maybe you were taking it, you know, you were a little too sensitive or you were taking it a little too personally. Whereas in this country, we have a tendency to validate, you know, the majority population's experience. And so I, I think that's something else we have to be mindful of as well that just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And denial of people's experience doesn't make it go away. If you've just joined us, my guest is Daniel Watt, Director of the Office of Biomedical Graduate Research of Education and Training at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine and Administrative Director of the Life Sciences Summer Undergraduate Research Program. So. I want to bring us back to the specific role, the palette of roles that you're performing at the University of Minnesota in the outreach. So with the disparities of healthcare, among others, does that, do you think, that may undermine prospective STEM professional to sign on to a STEM career? It's, they've had a bad brush with their healthcare delivery. So why would they go there? Or, you know, or is it a, a sort of a, a mobilizing, focusing kind of feature that the heck with that, that system, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna change. I mean, is it, does it work both ways, Danielle? I think it does, but I would say it might be skewed to the former, you know, a situation that you described where if I'm facing, you know, a, 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 if I have a, a negative experience or I'm facing some sort of discrimination, especially from a healthcare provider. Correct. Someone that I'm supposed to trust with my health, with my life. And so is that going to discourage me from seeking healthcare? You know, we all have heard of the numbers in, in the health disparities. I mean, yes. you know, National Institutes of Health have been researching this or paying, <laughs> um, providing the funding to, to investigate health disparities. And so part of it could, you know, is distrust of um, healthcare professionals because we have a history um, in science and research in healthcare 
with um, marginalized populations, especially, you know, one of the studies that comes to mind is the Tuskegee oh, um, experiments. And so we have to acknowledge our, our past, our history in, in science and research and healthcare, and really try to develop a level of trust. We have to, as um, researchers, as professionals, doctors, nurses, and anyone in healthcare professions really be mindful of our biases and how that might come out when we interact with our patients and um, also interact with our colleagues within the lab. So, you know, I'm including our, our research personnel as well. And I think actually um, there was another professor in one of the lectures that I heard this week that spoke about the impact of our experiences when we face racism or police brutality on our health. Yes. On our health, if you're a victim, um, if you're a relative of a victim, if you're a bystander and have similar background or experience as the victim, and that this racism, this police brutality is a healthcare, as a public health crisis. And it was- um, It's trauma, right? Yes. Trauma is a public health huge opening up yes well, maybe it's not opening up i shouldn't say that it, public trauma is a public health concern ongoing and perhaps deepening yes you know and it, is, it causes stress as you mentioned it's trauma and that disproportionately impacts communities of color and so that's something else that we have to address in the healthcare system and so where do we start? I, I have no idea, but I think, well, part of it does come from training, making sure that our healthcare professionals are trained in implicit bias, our research and our students are trained, but then also having a cultural awareness and a cultural sensitivity and being in tune to others' emotions and behaviors and allowing that to give us insight on how do we respond to this person and so not just being a brick wall, but having some emotional awareness, cultural awareness, and having you hopefully improve that relationship, that communication and building trust with your, your clients and your colleagues. So I would like to pivot or move beyond the outreach function, but retention is also a concern for the STEM researcher, the STEM professional. How much is retention for a person of color a concern and a part of your tasking? Yes, Claudia, I'm like over here silently clapping and snapping my fingers. So something that we do in my culture is if someone is speaking truth, you snap your fingers. Yes. It's, and it's getting picked up by others. Yes. <laughs> And so um, I'm so happy you mentioned retention because when I started in this position, that was something else that I really wanted to add was retention programming because it's not enough to just recruit students. We have to have programming resources in place to retain these students for them to successfully complete our programs, get their PhD and be prepared to move on into the workforce. And so if, we're recruiting students and we're not doing our absolute best to provide the resources to retain them to degree completion, then we have failed that student. And so that goes back to our conversation earlier 
and that you just can't recruit students and then uh, expect them to assimilate and you not having to really make an investment in that student. And so, and I think that's across the board is not just for marginalized populations, but to be honest, most of the resources that we provide in undergraduate and graduate programs are for the majority culture, which happens to be white. And so at, you know, there are other institutions that have had programs, um, retention programs in existence for 10, 20, 30 years. Other institutions have yet to start um, any retention programs, but it's, you know, it's popular now to recruit underrepresented minority students for graduate programs because there's, there's dollars tied to it. But we really have to um, put some thought into designing programs that are going to retain these students and prepare them to be the best when they reach their workforce. And with, it has to have representation on the faculty and on the, the with the lectures and the, the assistants to the faculty that that representation I would think would be essential and you're clapping with one hand in your retention aspect with that structural deficit that you may be facing at the University of Minnesota and other campuses. Yes, absolutely. I'm snapping my fingers again because um, <laughs> that's, that is something else that, you know, even when I go out and, and talk to students, when I first started in this position and literally three days later, I was on the road for recruitment and I was asked by an African-American student, what is it like being a black person in Minnesota? And I really had to think about how I was gonna answer that question. One, my immediate response was, you know, I really don't know because I just moved there literally five days ago. Mm. But then I can imagine me getting that question as when I hit the recruitment you know, trail this fall, yes. although it was gonna be virtual, Right. But I'm going to, given our current climate, what is it going to be like being a person of color on our campus, in our programs, um, especially if we lack representation in our student body and our faculty? What is it going to be like when the students leave their homes to come to campus? So what is it like being a person of color or underrepresented group in Minnesota, in St. Paul, in Minneapolis? And so how are we, not just me, but how are we collectively going to answer that question? What um, proof do we have? What previous experiences do we have in supporting our underrepresented students in our graduate programs? Because that's what the students are looking for now. They're not right. looking for statements. They're looking for action. They're looking for proof that well, if I come here, you're going to support me. They're going to provide the resources that I need, whether, you know, it's emotional support or, you know, mental health resources. Um, if I'm looking for a, a sense of community, am I going to have mentors and advisors who are going to consider, you know, um, the career paths that I want to choose and allow me to have professional and career development opportunities? And so what is that going to look like being here in Minnesota as you described earlier, you know, the ground zero for change. What an upheaval amidst your are now. But are you, is this, is this unlike where you think you've been in your life? You think we are at a major inflection point or is that just white people trying to make this feel like there's some redeeming 
aspect to this? You know, I, I don't know if I have um, an answer for that. I, I think about it and, yeah. you know, part of me is very hopeful and another part is just like, well, is anything really, is there any going to be any real change and, or any, well, there's going to be change, but is there going to be change to the point where I will be, or others will be satisfied? And so I think uh, assessing what is going to be that critical mass for me to be like, yes, or to feel a sense of accomplishment. And because, it, I mean, we've had change since, um, you know, the civil, civil rights movement, but... Since Reconstruction, and that was rolled back, then civil yes. rights. So like <laughs> Reverend Barber says, this is the third Reconstruction right now. And it just, you just wonder, well, how long is it going to last? You know, does it depend on, of course, who's going to be in power and what their agenda is? And it, are they really going to be committed to dismantling this system? Because, of course, you have to have power to be able to do that, power and privilege. And so the, the other thing that I think about is um, we have come a long way, but for even me being a black woman in STEM, there are things that people, women have faced, um, you know, several generations ago that I had faced as a graduate student that I face as a professional that students who are coming now still face. So you have to also wonder just because a few of us have been successful in this area, is that enough progress where we can collectively state that we've had progress and not just be satisfied with the progress we've been allowed to have. And so that's where I think I'm conflicted is like, yes, doing something is better than doing nothing. But is there something to the point where I'm going to be satisfied with like, this is the minimum that you should do for us to really impact change? That is what people need to hear. They need to know that this is totally up in the air for the people uh, who've been given short shrift for centuries. So that is something I'm filing away, and it gets into every other conversation I have from this point forward. Daniel, I so appreciate all of the time you've given me extra time, and I, I wish you well in navigating the current circumstances i i'm hoping that it translates that the there's there's goodwill genuine goodwill that's going to translate into more tailwinds for the work you're doing the essential work that you're doing and i hope that we'll have an opportunity at some point we can check back in and see how things are going there all right take care you too daniel bye-bye bye-bye